This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today with the question, what do I do with my doubts? What do I do with my doubts? Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who speaks to us, and so we want to be the people who listen. Help us to listen by the power of your spirit to receive what you have for us in your word, that you might change us into the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The best actors and actresses are sometimes called chameleons. And a chameleon role or a chameleon person is someone who can uh, play different roles, play various roles in various genres, and, and they're very versatile, they're very flexible, right? These are some of the people that you might expect would be the most uh, highest paid actors and actresses. But believe it or not, the highest paid actors and actresses are not chameleons typically. In fact, the highest paid person is not who you might think Denzel Washington or Meryl Streep or Tom Hanks, some of these famous people who've played in various roles with incredible talent. No, and in fact, the, the highest grossing actor of all time is Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson, who's played so many typecast roles, right? I mean, he, he's the type of person that if, if you need a cool, tough dude... Samuel L. Jackson's your guy. In fact, he's played that role so many times, it's been over a hundred movies that he's been in. And get this, if, depending on how you, you uh, calculate how much money he's made, ticket sales worldwide are somewhere in the range of $16 billion for the movies he's been in. That's a lot of money. And he's played the same role over and over. I mean, think about, could you imagine Samuel L. Jackson in a rom-com? It just doesn't fit, right? Just a romantic, you know, intimate scenes with, with gushy emotions. No, 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 he, he doesn't do that, right? But if you need a cool, tough dude, he's your guy. He's, he's made, he might be the typecast goat of all time, right? He, he is that guy. Yet before there was Samuel L. Jackson, there was Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas has been forever typecast as the role of doubting, right? He, he's played that role so many times in so many different people's lives. People who don't even read the Bible, have never maybe read the Bible in their life, know about Doubting Thomas. People know about Doubting Thomas. He's entered into the culture as this person who, who people are aware of. Maybe, maybe you've called somebody Doubting Thomas. Maybe you've been called Doubting Thomas, right? It's this thing that people know about, they hear about, but... What does that mean? Why? Right? It's interesting to me that Downing Thomas, if you want to call him that, has really a background role in, in John's gospel. You think about it, Thomas really has only two times he appears in John's gospel, and, and both of them are not very significant appearances, and then he appears at the end of John's gospel and has this massively famous scene. In fact, we're going to see in a second, he, he plays this role that really uh, encapsulates and closes the entire Gospel of John, all about this person, Thomas, who's doubting. And so we enter into his story because his story is our story. His struggle is our struggle. And so today we're starting a new series called Christianity's Biggest Questions. Christianity's Biggest Questions. Questions. And the truth is, I think Thomas has been typecast because we relate to him. 
where he's become so popular and so well-known because we know what it's like to doubt. I mean, all of us doubt. Doubt is not a respecter of persons. You can doubt if you're a believer or an unbeliever. You can doubt whether you're rich or poor. You doubt whether you're old or young. Everybody doubts. The question is not, do you doubt? The question is, what do you do with the doubts? What do you do with the doubts? And what's fascinating to me about Thomas's story is he helps us understand some of this struggle. And so this whole series, we're going to really talk about major questions that give us doubt or give us concern or things that we've always wondered about maybe. And But today we're going to kind of give an introduction, an overview, if you will, focusing in on just the very simple question, what do I do with these doubts? Hopefully it can be a helpful time for each of us in our own doubt, but also to equip us for others who maybe in your life are struggling with doubt. And so first, let's start by looking at our friend Thomas. If you're taking notes today, the first thing I want to look at is the doubt of Thomas, the doubt of Thomas. Look at verse 24 with me. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now stop there for a second because we've got to give you some context. We're coming into this story really on the back end. If you were with us last week during Easter, you got a little bit of the context because this is actually the first Easter Sunday right here in John chapter 20. And so what's happened obviously is on Friday, Jesus was crucified. He was dead and buried. And then on Sunday morning, uh, Jesus rises from the dead, right? He gets up and he's alive. But now Jesus goes and he shows himself to all of his followers. Jesus goes and shows himself to his disciples, but the first person he shows himself to is Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene comes across Jesus in the the garden that's surrounding the tomb, and Jesus' body is so scarred and, and so unrecognizable that she actually mistakes him for the gardener at the tomb. Mary doesn't recognize him at first until Jesus then opens his mouth and he says her name. And as soon as he says her name, Mary says, I know him. That's Jesus, right? And so Mary, the first missionary, she goes and runs to the disciples, and she immediately goes to find the disciples, and she says to them, I've seen the Lord. Now, where are the disciples? They're they're in a room, locked in the room, hiding out, scared, discouraged, depressed, because just a few days ago, they lost their best friend, their, their Messiah that they had put their hope in. Jesus has died. Now they're in the room, huddled up, and Mary comes into the room and says, I've seen him. And their first response is not, great, we were expecting that. Their first response is, no, 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 we, we saw Jesus die. We don't believe anything you're saying. We, we want to see it for ourselves. And so Jesus steps into the room right at that point. This is happening right before our text that we looked at. I'm giving you some context. Jesus steps into the room. He shows them his hands with the nail marks. He shows them his side with the spear mark. Right? He shows them these wounds. And as soon as he shows them the wounds, they say, it's him. It's Jesus. He, he really is here, and they believe. Now, the question is, where's Thomas at this point? John goes out of his way to say Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus shows up to the other disciples. Now, we don't know exactly what's happening here, but we do know one thing for sure. People grieve differently. 
right? People grieve differently, and all of them have been through this traumatic experience just a few days before where they had lost Jesus and lost what they had put all their hope into and had put the last few years of their life into, right? And so some of them are grieving in that room together, but for some reason, Thomas has put himself outside. He's all by himself, grieving by himself, doubting by himself, discouraged by himself. And so the disciples decide, we got to go find Thomas. We, we, we got to go find out where Thomas is. And so they run to go give him the testimony. They want to echo Mary's testimony in verse 25. Look at what it says in verse 25. They say, we have seen the Lord. Now, their belief was no match for Thomas's unbelief. Thomas then gives back to them his demands in verse 25. Look at what he says. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas wants proof. Thomas, Thomas doesn't want to hear for some preacher. Thomas doesn't want to hear his friends tell him how they've seen something, they've experienced something. Thomas says, I want to know for myself that this is true. I want proof that this is true. And so he starts to make demands saying, if I don't see this and I don't see that and I don't touch this, then I will never believe. Listen, demanding doubt can be dangerous doubt. It can be dangerous doubt. Let's pause here for a second. Overall, doubt can be healthy. I mean, there is room in our uh, faith for questions and concerns and mysteries and things we just don't fully understand. In fact, one person I was listening to, he said, if you don't have genuine doubts at some point in your faith, it may not be a genuine faith. Think about that. He, he said, because the reason is doubt proves that you're actually thinking about your faith. It proves that you're actually asking good questions and you're dealing with hard issues. And, and so if you have no doubt, it's, it's probably a sign that you haven't thought through some hard things. Paul even tells us in Jude 22, he says, Have mercy on those who doubt. On those who doubt. Right? Paul is telling us, he's saying, don't avoid your doubts, wrestle through them, work through them, ask good questions, bring them to God, let those things out in the open so you can deal with them, right? But listen, there's a danger with demanding doubt. There's a danger where you start to say to God, not only am I doubting and I'm questioning and I'm having these concerns, but I need you to prove to me that this is true, or prove to me that I have an answer for this, or I'll never believe in you. You start making demands, right? Do you hear the difference? Dangerous doubt puts demands on God. We, we demand answers for our struggles. We, we demand answers for an absent father. We demand answers for the loneliness in our life. We, we demand answers for all these things happening in our lives. And what happens is when you make those demands, it doesn't help the doubt that you're struggling with. It actually makes the doubt worse. And often, many of our doubts are really about God's goodness. Right? What's happening is sometimes we, we masquerade around saying that, that we doubt these things that are intellectual questions or puzzles that we can't try to figure out or, or whatever it is, but, but really what's happening is we're struggling at the core of who we are with God's goodness. Is he good? 
Right? Is, is he really good below the surface? For Thomas, even, I think Thomas was, was not wrestling with some intellectual question that he quit, couldn't quite figure out. What Thomas is wrestling with is, how do I make sense of a God who's good and would allow the crucifixion? How can God be good and allow the atrocities of war? How can God be good and allow my child to die in infancy? How can God be good and allow the, the horrific terror of slavery? Right? These, are, these are big questions that we're not just asking intellectual questions. These are questions about God's goodness. His goodness in who he is and his very nature. How could a good God allow my marriage to fall apart? How could a good God allow my finances to be in such terrible uh, condition? How could these things happen? See, I've often found it's, it's easier to believe God's great than God's good sometimes. Right? We struggle with His goodness more than His greatness. Because it's, it's easier to say God is great and He can do incredible things and He can do mighty things, but will He do them for me? Right? If you get down to the heart of it, this is where we really struggle. And these are actually some of the questions we're going to get to in the rest of the series. We're going to ask that question, how does a good God allow suffering? Because these are deep questions, but it really gets to the core issue of, do I believe God is good? And not just do I believe He's able or He's great and He's mighty, but do I believe He moves in my life in such a way He really cares for me? Is He good? I mean, ask yourself that. When have you said to God, never, never will I believe until you do this. Never, never will I believe until I've got an answer for this. And ask yourself, is what I'm really struggling with his goodness? His goodness. I mean, how do we deal with the demands of our doubt? I think, first, we have to come face to face with the love of Jesus. And this is the second point, the love of Jesus. Look, look at what happens next in the story. Look at verse 26. It goes on to say, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, this is fascinating. John tells us it's been eight days, but he doesn't tell us what happened in those eight days. I mean, who knows what's going on in eight days where... Thomas is off by himself and he's struggling. He's, you, you know, maybe, maybe his friends are trying to pray for him. Maybe his friends are trying to encourage him. They're, they're trying to describe to him, no, this is what Jesus looks like. We've seen him. We're, we've seen the resurrected Christ, right? These eight days, that's a long time where they're struggling. He's struggling, trying to figure out how do I make sense of this? And then John says, after eight days, they all get together again. They're in the room now, but this time it's different. Thomas is there. And as they sit in the room, the doors are locked just like before, but this time Jesus, it says, he just shows up. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this is confusing, but somehow Jesus gets into the locked room. Scholars try to speculate maybe he can walk through walls now that he's resurrected. I don't know if I buy that because Jesus says his resurrected body is real flesh, like it's a real body. Uh, I think what's more likely is that Jesus somehow miraculously unlocks the doors, or maybe they unlock the doors, and John just didn't say that. We don't know what happened, so don't get caught up on that. But somehow, Jesus shows up in the room, just like he'd done before. And what fascinates me more than how he got in the room is what he says when he gets in the room. He says, 
peace be with you. Peace be with you. I mean, think about that. He doesn't condemn Thomas. He doesn't say to Thomas, look, I've heard you've been doubting about me. I've heard you don't believe in the resurrection. I heard that you made all these demands and you're, you're getting proud and arrogant about all the things I should be doing to prove to you something. He doesn't go off on Thomas. He walks in and he says, peace be with you. I mean, the most gentle, encouraging, life-giving message Jesus could give. Peace be with you. But then he goes further in verse 27. Look at what he says to Thomas. He says, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus reenacts everything he had just done for the disciples the previous couple days ago, right? But now he does it in a way where he custom fits it for Thomas. I mean, Thomas had made these demands. He said, I won't believe until he does this, this, and this. And Jesus graciously, kindly does all of them. Right? He doesn't do this because Jesus somehow bows down to Thomas and Thomas is now in charge of Jesus. Right? He doesn't do it because he has to prove himself. He does it for this reason only. He does it because he loves Thomas. He loves him. He loves his brother who's struggling. And just because he loves him, he says, here, this is what you've asked for. Come, come, touch, touch my side. See my hands. It's me, right? Jesus loves us in our doubt. You need to hear that today. You need to hear that Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't dismiss you in your doubt. He sees you. He doesn't dismiss you and say, I don't care about what you're going through. I, I, you know, what you need to do is believe in me no matter what. He, he sees you in your struggle. He sees you where, where maybe you've been walking through dark nights of the soul, where you've been up all night, you've been stressed, you've been crying, you've been praying, you've, you've been asking questions you didn't know you could ask. All kinds of things happen in your life. Or maybe you're so burnt out from uh, the stress in your family or, or at work or whatever it is. Whatever it is you're walking through, Jesus wants you to hear. He sees you in it. He sees you and he moves towards you in it. Right? He doesn't see it and say, well, that, that's not a big deal. Don't worry about it, or you should just get over that. Jesus sees it, and he moves towards you, and he loves you. He loves you in it. I want you to hear, we don't have to conquer our doubt to know his love. The great lie of legalism, the great lie of legalism is you have to get yourself together and then give yourself to God. The lie of legalism is I, I got to have it all together. I got to figure out all my doubts. I got to figure out all my questions. I got to answer all these problems. I got to have my emotions in check. I got to have, you know, my thoughts clear. I got to have everything together so that I can bring myself to God. And let me tell you, that's nothing more than legalism. It's the complete opposite of the gospel. The gospel is, no, you are not together. Now bring yourself to Jesus. You don't have the answers now bring yourself to Jesus. You don't have all the solutions. You don't have all the things that you think you need to have. Now bring yourself to Jesus because, listen, the lie of legalism will get deep into your heart and it'll start telling you things like God will tolerate you, but he doesn't love you. He'll, he'll tolerate you. Like he'll, he'll kind of squeeze his nose as he gets a little bit closer to you. You stink a little bit and he'll try to do his best with you. But that's not the gospel. 
The gospel is a merciful God towards doubters and sinners who cry out, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. The gospel is for people who are honest enough to confess, I don't know. And I am comfortable with that. So maybe you're here waiting for certainty, and you've said things like, Thomas, you've said, I'm never going to believe until I see this. Or I'm never going to believe until God does this. Listen, if you're waiting for certainty, if you're waiting for some message in the sky, if you're waiting for God to do exactly what you're asking him to do, he might. He might like Jesus did for Thomas. But in my experience, most of the time he doesn't. Most of the time, what, what doesn't happen is, is you get all your answers and you get all your, your proof, but, but what does happen, what you do need, is his love. See, the problem is when, when you're waiting for certainty, you get the one thing that you had a question about and it gets proven or you get an answer that you're satisfied with, and then now all of a sudden you've got six other questions. And then you get those six questions answered, and now all of a sudden you've got 12 other questions because... All of the things that you are wondering about and curious about are wonderful things, but there is more than you can actually understand. God is bigger than we can comprehend. God is more than we can understand. And so what's going to happen is you're going to get to the point where you're going to realize, I'll never be without questions. Faith has never been about evidence or proof. It's always been about love always been about love. Jesus' love for us in our doubt is what moves us to believe. And this is what I want to look at lastly, the faith of Thomas, the faith of Thomas. Look at verse 28 as we close. It says this, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas's confession in a way is, is really a close to John's gospel because John's gospel, if you've read it before, opens up with these words in, in chapter one. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? So John's whole gospel is about showing us that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the son of God. Jesus is not just some wise teacher. He's not just some prophet to unjust systems. He's not just somebody who loves the poor. Jesus is who he said he is. He's the son of God. And so here's Thomas saying with his own mouth, out of the doubter's mouth, my God and my Lord. Thomas is delivered from doubt. But how? Why? How does this happen, right? Look at verse 29. Jesus tells us, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Here it is. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Did Thomas simply believe because he, he got what he asked for, because he saw Jesus and his wounds? Yes and no. Jesus is saying, did you believe because of that? No, because there's going to be plenty of people who never see and yet they believe. Jesus is saying that faith isn't tied necessarily to seeing. It's not about seeing. It's about something else. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Peter's saying this to the next generation of Christians, saying, listen, you haven't seen Jesus, and yet you believe. Just like, just like Jesus said to Thomas, it's not about seeing. It's not about evidence or proof. So what is it? It's love. Love. Love delivers us from doubt. There was a guy by the name of B.J. Miller who was a student at Princeton in 1990. 
and uh, he had a tragic accident uh, while he was at a commuter train station where he was electrocuted at the train station. 11,000 volts of electricity going through his body. They said that when his friends found him, uh, he was, he was uh, passed out and his feet were still smoking because of all the electricity. But he doesn't remember any of that because he actually woke up a couple days later in the burn unit of St. Barnabas Medical Center. And uh, for weeks, the staff were trying to figure out, can we save him? Can we keep him alive? Is he going to make it? And he didn't know any of this was going on. They didn't tell him he was in isolation in the burn unit in critical condition. And so all he could think about as he's sitting there is not, am I going to make it? But what's life going to be like if I make it? What is life going to be like? Is anyone going to love me? Is anyone going to care for me? Is anyone going to be there for me? What are they going to think of me with all of these burns on my body? All of this is rushing through his head and he's doubting. He's sitting in the room by himself doubting, will anybody ever love me? Here he is as he's sitting there. They roll him out of his room to go to his surgery. And as they roll him out of the room, down the hallway next to the elevator, Next to the elevator are all his friends and family standing there waiting for him just to catch a glimpse of him before he goes into surgery. In the article I was reading about his story, he said this, he was quoted as saying, they all dared to show up. They all dared to look at me. They were proving that I was lovable even when I couldn't believe it. Do you hear it? His doubt was removed by their love, by their love. Some of us here, as we're dealing with doubts, and we're going to walk through some really hard questions in this series, some of us are waiting for certainty. We're waiting for proof. We're waiting for all the answers to our questions. And if you're waiting on that, like I said, you may get some answers, but you might be waiting for the wrong thing. What really transforms our hearts, what we really need is love. It's the love of Jesus that delivers us from doubt. It's the love of Jesus that gives us faith, right? Why does Jesus say it's more blessed to, to, to uh, not see than it is to see? Because the relationship is now based on not your demands, but his love. His love, right? That's the difference. What greater love is there than a Savior who lays down his life for sinners like us? The gospel is about a God who became one of us, taking on human flesh and blood. He came from the comfort of heaven to the pain of earth. He came to the sick and the selfish, the doubters, the delinquent. He came to die. He came to hang on a cross. He came for people who make demands on him. He came for people like you and me who make demands on his goodness, who doubt who he is. For people like us, he died on a cross. For people who constantly question whether he's able to do what he said. He said, I'll die. He said, I'll give it all. Make no doubt, that is love. That's love. And that loving Savior, as he comes to Thomas, he comes to us, he says, I'm, I'm alive. I'm here. And I'm here for you. I mean, as we close today, have you let the love of Jesus deal with your doubt? To deal with your doubt. That's the question we got to wrestle with, right? Because maybe today you're struggling through doubt, and I've got doubts, and you've got doubts. We've all got doubts. We all, in some way, have that same confession. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. But the question is, what are you going to do with them? Are you going to take them to Jesus, who can deal with them and love you in them? Because if you're here and you haven't made that, that move yet to, to take them to Jesus, he's inviting you in to do that. 
He's saying, this, this is what I'm here for. I'm here to deal with your struggles. I'm here to deal with your sin, with your suffering, with your pain, with all the brokenness in your life. I'm here. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. And may our confession be, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you love us in the midst of our doubt. You don't wait for us to get it all together because you would be waiting forever. You don't wait for us to have all the answers because we don't. You don't wait for us to prove anything to you because you've proven everything already on the cross. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would, in our unbelief, in our doubts, our concerns, our questions, you would give us the humility to just take them to you, to ask the hard questions in your presence, not apart from you, but with you with you, close to you, knowing that you're the God who heals, you're the God who restores, you're the God who transforms our hearts and minds. And so Lord, even today I pray for all those who are here where we may be struggling in various things, that you would move in our life to change us, to encourage us. By the power of the gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet this morning.